0: At first, the tribune knows that if Paul is truly guilty of defiling the temple in some kind of a way, and that this happened on Jewish holy ground, and if he's brought a Gentile into the temple, then this is Jewish matters. And the tribune is just to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. But this is, he, uh, under Roman law, this is a Jewish law, a Jewish trial, a Jewish crime, a Jewish prisoner. But the minute that Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen, it now becomes a Roman problem under Roman guard, under Roman law, under Roman captivity or imprisonment. Now everything is shifted politically. Everything is shifted in power to the tribune. And now this is his turf. And so now it's no longer like, I'm going to stay out of this. I got to figure this. Now he's going to go right in like a shark. and He's going to figure out what the heck is actually going on. In some ways... This is good for Paul, because from this point on, Paul is going to do everything he can to stay in Roman hands. He doesn't like letting everybody know that he's a Roman citizen, but now the cat is out of the bag. Now, here's the question, though. Does the Sanhedrin know this? Most likely, if they found out, (laughs) they might be even more furious, because that would just validate in their minds that he's in league with the Gentiles kind of a thing. So the tribune knows this. It was said in the barracks, no Jew would have ever been in the barracks. So now he's come out. They may not know whether they might still think this is their preview, their preview and their power and their dominion and that kind of stuff. But what Paul knows is the game has changed. And what Paul knows is if he is handed over to the Sanhedrin and placed in the Sanhedrin, then they are a bunch of fanatics that will kill him without any l- real evidence or any th- real adherence to the Mosaic law, and they will never think anything about it in all their passion and heated upness, just like they did with Stephen and his approval. But if he's under Roman control, then he knows he really has committed no crime that they'll kill him for. They know that they, the Romans will be methodical and they'll investigate, especially now that he's a citizen. This means that fanaticism and emotions no longer controls the the scene here what does control the scene is methodical investigation to figure out whether he's adhered or violated roman law and if he hasn't then he'll be released this is what he where he wants to be from this point on from this point on when we get into this next speech this is what he's going to try to maintain you're going to realize that we've seen that not only is Paul know Judaism really well, but he knows the Roman religion really well, the speech at Athens and invoking the unknown God and that kind of stuff. But he also gets the politics of everything. And you're going to see him manipulate in a political way, not manipulate people. He would never do that. But manipulate the pol- politics of things a little bit in order to make sure that he doesn't die. Because remember... Paul doesn't care about dying. He's made that very clear, not only in his own words and his writings, but even the way that he's lived. But what he does care is, remember, for me to die is gain, but to live is Christ. The longer I'm alive, the more I can preach the gospel. I want to stay alive so another voice can preach the gospel. But if preaching the gospel kills me, then to die is is gain. This is Paul's thinking. It's not like, oh, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I'm going to manipulate things. No, this is, as long as I can figure out a way to stay alive so the gospel can go out. And even right now, I'm going to still be preaching the gospel. This is what you got to love about Paul. Even when he's on trial, he's like, the gospel, the gospel. That's all he cares about is just how can I stay alive longer and how can I treat every single audience as an opportunity for the gospel. That's what he's going to do. He knows that if he stays under Roman law and Roman trial, he will, these charges will be dismissed and he will be let go. That's what he knows. So chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked directly at the council, the Sanhedrin, which had been a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees, the political right and the political left. I have lived my life with a clear conscience before God to this day. At that, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you You whitewashed wall. He begins to state, I have lived before God with a clear conscience. What he does not mean is like, I have committed no sin and done no wrong. I'm a perfect, righteous person. He does not mean that. What he means is, I have done everything that God has asked me to do according to the mission and the purpose he's given me with a clear conscience. I have never once rebelled against God. Like like rebelled. My, that just sin or committed things, but said like, forget you God, I'm doing what I want. I have never, ever, ever fled or ran away or walked away from what God has called me to do like someone like Jonah has. I have served God with a clear conscience. I have never done anything to oppose His will intentionally or to run away from the mission that He's given me. Had that, Ananias is like, Remember, Ananias was the high priest under Jesus' trial. Caiaphas was like the high-ranking high priest, and when he was no longer high priest, he went eventually to a, b- a bunch of his sons, but they all got sacked by Rome, and eventually went to his na- um, his son-in-law, Ananias. And then they kind of carried the power together, kind of like the uh, the Godfather movies, where the father is still in rank but the son now kind of there, or kind of co-reign kind of thing. Ananias was horribly, evilly corrupt as the high priest. He's supposed to be the righteous, the most righteous man in all of Israel. But Ananias took bribes. Ananias, he was the one who rigged the entire offering system where he would steal from the offering plate and take it for his own purposes to build his own houses and feed his own family and that kind of stuff. But he was also the one who was like cheating them in the exchange of money. And the selling inferior animals or telling you that your animal was inferior when it wasn't and making you buy another animal that was actually inferior and then taking your animal and then taking it home to make a profit off of it. This is the, the everything that was made Jesus mad when he went into the temple was directly commanded and approved by Ananias. And so this guy's corrupt. And it was Caiaphas, the father-in-law, that Jesus stood before and said, like, and Caiaphas is like, do you claim to be the king? And Jesus went one way, one step further and said, oh, I, I'm the son of God. Like, literal God. And Caiaphas says, blasphemy, you've heard it. And now Paul is standing before these same men again, under trial. And Ananias is like, of course you're guilty. And he orders for him to be striked, struck on the face. Now, what is Paul doing here? He prophesies against Ananias. And he basically says this: You are the whitewash wall. Do you sit there judging me according to the law, in violation of the law, in order to be order me to strike? It was illegal according to the Mosaic law to strike a man on trial. The only way that you were allowed to strike anybody with any kind of judgment is if you had two witnesses and evidence of the crime before ten elders. That then convicted you. There's no evidence of Paul's crime. The people who accuse him of bringing the Gentile to the temple aren't there, which Paul is going to mention later. There's no evidence. And he there's no, definitely and the ten elders haven't convicted him. And the same way that they violated Jesus' trial. They had no witnesses, they had no evidence, and they did the trial at night. And they beat Jesus. It was also legal to have a trial at night because it was the darkness. And God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Not that verdicts are changed at dark time because dark is real, but people who aren't well-slept and waking waking up in the middle of the night don't make good decisions, and it's symbolic. So what Paul is basically saying, you're putting me on trial for violation of the law, as you yourself right now in front of everybody have just violated the law by having me struck, you whitewashed tombs. Now, remember, whitewashed walls or tombs, it could be either one, where it basically looks really nice and pretty on the outside, but it's rotting and falling apart on on the inside. And so Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, meaning your tombstone looks really pretty and beautiful, but it's a rotting corpse underneath that. Paul is calling it a whitewashed wall, meaning your wall is falling apart and being rotted by, in our day and age, we would say termites and mold. And what you've done is just washed it and bleached it in order to make it look nice still, even though it's falling apart. And so this is what he prophesied. You're going to basically, he's prophesying, you look good, but eventually you're going to fall apart and die and collapse. And so this is the prophecy against him. And so this is the hypocrisy over and over again is just absolute blatant hypocrisy. Those standing near him said, do you dare insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, I did not realize, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you must not speak evil about a ruler of your people. They basically say, how dare you insult him? Which just shows their corruption too. Like, this guy just violated the law that you claimed to uphold. And then you're offended that he's getting insulted. Which he's not getting insulted because what he did was actually illegal. And so Paul like fires back, he's like, wow, there's a lot of trash talking going on here, right? It's like I didn't know trash talking was biblical. Oh, but go back and read Kings and learn about Baal-zebub. So (laughs) that's trash talking. But Paul fires back and quotes from Exodus chapter twenty-two, verse twenty-eight, saying, You must not speak evil about a ruler of your people. And basically he's saying, I didn't realize he's a ruler because he's not acting like a ruler. He's violating the law unlike a ruler. And no, I didn't insult him because he's not a ruler. So I didn't actually violate anything myself. So you might have put a badge on his chest, but he's not a ruler in God's eyes. Verse 6. Then when Paul noticed that a part of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he shouted out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of the Pharisees. I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, an argument began between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angel of the Spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. There was a great commotion, and some experts in the law from the party of the Pharisees stood up and protested strongly. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit of an angel has spoken to him? When the arguments became so great, the commanding officer feared that they would tear Paul to pieces. He ordered the detachment to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. So Paul realizes that the only reason that he's really entertaining this is one, to make sure that he stays under Roman control so that they don't fanatically just end his life. And two, like, I have my fellow Jews here. I can preach the gospel. But he can't get to that. Like, he, he he can't even speak. He's trying to, like, give something, and he's immediately getting slapped and then condemned. And then you have to admit he got a little carried away with the trash talking, too. At this point, he realizes this is going nowhere. I have no opportunity for speaking the, the gospel. Now that it's blatantly obvious under Roman control, I might as well just stir the pot up so much that the tribune will realize that this is a complete waste of time and Rome will just take completely over the control. He does what he knows. He goes and he says, I believe in the resurrection. And at that point, the, the people who believe in the resurrection, the people who don't just like start turning on each other because he's basically found the thing that they hate each other for and they'll get in an argument over every single time. And he just pushes that button several times and says, there you go. And he just stands back. And he watches as they turn on each other. And at this point, what he's revealed to the tribune is they're out of control. Like I have stood here calmly and I have told my history and I have said why I believe what I believe. And I have said that I'm willing to tell them. And they're just slapping me and condemning me. And now they're turning on each other. And at this point, the tribune realizes like we have a classroom for a kindergartners. We have got to get this guy out of here. Sounds like social media. He realizes that he will get no fair trial. And he realizes that this, point, he knew it already, but at this point it's obviously clear that this is fanaticism and hypocrisy. And so he now turns himself completely over to the Romans. Tenhill says this, Paul keeps coming back to the theme of hope and resurrection, even when it no longer provokes disruption. It will be central theme in Paul's climactic defense speech before King Agrippa. Paul is doing more than more than injecting a controversial subject in the Sanhedrin hearing. He is trying to change the entire issue of his trial. He will persist in this effort and subsequent scenes. Therefore the significance of Paul's statement is that he is on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. It can be understood only by considering the development of this theme and later scenes. Not only is Paul using this to get them to go at each other so he can be pulled out, but he's also stating the fact. This is not a lie. This is what it's really about. This is what it's really about. You say that it's because of the law. Not really. And you say that it's about the defiling of the temple. Not really. And you say it's because I'm going to the Jews. And you're right, that is more the issue here than I'm going to the Jews. But anybody who knows the Bible, anybody who knows the law, knows that this is exactly what God called us to do from the very, very beginning. This is the point that Jesus makes in Nazarene when he quotes from Isaiah and says, like, and talks about Elijah going to the widow of and Naaman and Elisha going to Naaman. Like, this is exactly what you're called to. That's not even really the real issue. The real, real issue is the resurrection. This is what it's really about. You Pharisees say that you believe in the resurrection, but when you had a resurrection happen right before your eyes, you're not willing to be fully committed. And you Sadducees say that you're Jews, but the resurrection has always been the heart of the Judaism, of the gospel. And how can you deny that when it's clearly, if God is God, then he can do anything. This is what it's about. And from this point on, when, the tri- when Rome takes control to, they will keep order. This is the last time that things will be lost out of control. From this point on, every trial is going to be a Roman-controlled trial. Under Festus, under Felix, or eventually in Rome. And at that point, Paul will have every opportunity now to actually talk about the resurrection. He'll have every opportunity to talk about the resurrection. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Have courage, for as you just have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now this is a turning point. This is a turning point in the trials. Because what has just happened? God coming to him that night does a couple of things. First, it lets you know that Paul is discouraged. On the outside, reading this, it looks like Paul is in control, right? It lo- well, not Paul's in control. Paul's holding it together. Paul's holding it together. It seems that he's very boldly and confidently preaching the gospel, and he is, but at the same time, he's not really because he keeps getting hindered over and over and over again. He very confidently says, I'm a Roman citizen, do not do this to me. He's now manipulating the Pharisees and Sadducees against each other so that they'll go into chaos. The tribune will take full Roman control now over everything. But the fact that God comes in this night and says, have courage, don't be afraid, lets you know that Paul is not okay on the inside. And to how much he's not okay, I don't know. But not okay enough that God comes to him in our vision. I mean, I guarantee you, No matter how much Paul doesn't really care about dying, ultimately in the wrong run, because to live is Christ and to die is gain, and no matter how much he's really committed to pay the ultimate price for the gospel, he's still human. Nobody wants to be torn apart by the crowds. Nobody wants to have rocks bashed in their heads. Nobody wants to have all their skin flayed off their back. Nobody wants to stand before their own people and watch them turn away from God. Nobody wants to have any of this theory. I mean, he, this is going to be, this is a roller coaster for him right now. This shows you that when you read this, it looks like Paul has just so got it together. He's holding all of his nerves and his emotions in. And, and, and granted, there's probably a lot of compartmentalizing happening. But if you've ever compartmentalized before, you know when you're all alone and the dust has settled, <coughs> the containers Burst the container's burst. You can only keep the lid on the compartmentalizing for so long. So long. And so in this night Pauls God is coming to him as a very real human being who's scared, afraid, doesn't want to experience pain, is probably feeling defeated that in all of this he didn't get one word out on the gospel, doesn't know what's really going to happen to his life at this point, and God encourages him. God encourages him. The second thing that happens here though is at this point that God very clearly lays out to Paul and now to us as the readers. Now we don't just have Paul saying that God wanted him to go to Jerusalem and be arrested, that he's okay with that. We don't have just Paul saying, I ultimately would dream and love to go to Rome. Now we have a very clear statement from God that you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome. My mission and my purpose for you has always been to the Jews and to the Gentiles, but now I'm taking you to the ultimate Gentile heart, Rome, and if and the gospel's already there, the gospel's already there. What well, we'll find out there's already churches there, but what God is going to do is He's going to put Paul before Caesar himself, and that's what we're going to find out later too. Is that God has told him He's going to be with Caesar, and Paul can go there and he will strengthen the church. How is he going to get there? Paul probably never imagined they would be on a prison and with Roman soldiers, but he's still going to get here. What God is basically saying is, it's not going to be easy. Remember, I told you, at this point, there are no more miracles. Miracles in what we would think of happy-go-lucky, freeing from prisons, gates magically opening up, no longer being persecuted, that kind of stuff, only spending one night in prison. There's going to be no more of that. Paul's going to spend the next several years in prison. He's going to spend the next couple years in red tape stalling, just limbo, wondering what's going to happen the next day. He's going to go on a ship. And yes, God is going to miraculously save them from that shipwreck. It's not going to be a fun saving, though. It's going to be a traumatic experience. And then he's going to be forgotten, kind of, in prison in Rome, too. Yes, God is basically saying, I'm not going to let you die until you get to Rome. You're going to Rome. I will take care of you. But that doesn't mean you're going in a limousine with caviar and wine. It's, all thats that's gone. At this point, for whatever reason, God is shifting modes with Paul and the way that he handles the miraculous. Verse 12. When morning came, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them, and they formed this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves with a solemn oath not to partake of anything until we have killed Paul. So now you and the council request the commanding officer to bring him down to you. And if you were going to determine if as if you were going to determine his case by conducting a more thorough inquiry, we are ready to kill him before he comes near this palace. So this is how seriously they want him dead. Forty men, 40 men. They are politically powerful enough that they go to the Sanhedrin and say, this is what you're going to do so that we can get Paul, so that we can kill him. And the Sanhedrin is going to do it. That's political power. That's political power. They're committed. And they are not going to get anything. This is how seriously they want Paul dead. This is how hypocritical they actually are. And the Sanhedrin agreed to this. They agreed to this. Obviously, these men are going to starve to death because they will be not be successful. So, Verse 16, but when the son of Paul's sister heard about the ambush, he came and entered the barracks. We don't know how he found out about this, but he did. And he told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commanding officer, for he has something to report to him. So the centurion took him and brought him to the commanding officer and said the prisoner Paul called the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Now this says something about how the centurion has gained respect for Paul. I mean yes he's a Roman citizen and yes he hasn't really had really truly Roman true Roman crimes brought against him. But Paul says look th- The tribune needs to hear what this guy has to say. And the centurion says, okay. The commanding officer took him by the hand, withdrew privately, and asked, what is this that you want to report to me? He replied, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as if they were going to inquire more thoroughly about him. So do not let them persuade you to do this, because more than 40 of them are lying in ambush for him, and they have bound themselves with an oath and not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. And now they are ready and waiting for you to agree to their request. So the report has been made here that this is what's going to happen. Then they summoned two of the centurions and said make ready for 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea along with twenty, so, along with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen by 9 o'clock tonight. At this point, Everything is completely shifted into Rome. Everything has been shifted in the Rome. He now realizes that the, he, and listen too, the Tribune is not like no, they would never do that. Not good, godly men of the Jewish law. He's like okay. <laughs> he knows exactly what they're like. He knows exactly what they're committed to, and he's also seen a lot in the last two days. And so he immediately gives the command that they take up to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea is north by up by the, the Sea of Galilee and on um, the Mediterranean. And at this point, we are completely leaving the pre, the, the, the control of the, the Jews, and everything is shifting to Rome. And at this point, we realize that this is Yahweh in control. It just it's not a coincidence that this sun has just happened over here. This that the tribune just happens to completely buy or agree and know that this is possible. And now we're we're taking our first step towards Rome as we enter under that. That is the end of that section.